This is Tangent. Nicole Duet is an associate professor of drawing and painting and chair of studio art at the School of Design at Louisiana Tech University. She is an observation-based painter and illustrator working in a variety of media, including oil painting, watercolor, and silver point. Her studio practice is grounded in her curiosity over the reliability of perception and in her long-held belief that the greatest potential for discovery emerges through noticing what we notice. In this interview, we talk about how light, color, and time affect her work, how to see the rewards and challenges of teaching and painting as a dying medium, When did you first fall in love with art? It's probably two stages, but to different depths. Like there's falling and then there's falling hard, right? Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. so, so I think I, I think I fell first when I was really young and started um, listening to music a lot. And like nothing else, just sitting in the room listening to music. What kind and of then, music? I mean, just the classic rock kind of stuff okay sort of giving away my giving away my i mean i love simon and garfunkel i love yeah, all this sort of uh, Joni mitchell all that kind of stuff um but i'll <laughs> draw on their album covers mm-hmm. that started then and I, I felt like i don't know that was something that i found really just i got absorbed into it took my focus and i really fell in love with it but i didn't know what art was and i didn't know i think i always felt like especially with what what I was taught in grade school, I always felt like you just had to be able to draw. You were born with that. And once I left the realm of being able to look at something and copy it, I didn't feel like I had nothing beyond that, right? And even then, I got lucky with certain things and not lucky with other things yeah. that I was trying to draw. So that would have been phase one, I think. But then when I when I was living in California and going to school as a theater major, I actually went to... A museum for the first time in my life and it was Getty Museum by the ocean and I was standing in front of um, a painter who I really don't like very much anymore now but <laughs> it was a Renoir uh-huh. um, you know one of those chubby sweet pale skin dudes dancing in the yeah. pasture kind of Ew, and why not why not now oh because you know it's just so sort of saccharine and Mm-hmm. kind of fantasy and yeah. um, chauvinistic, you know, yeah. all of those things, I think. Um, but, you know, and, and even the soft, soft focus is cheesy, yeah. cheesy art to me now. Um, it's terrible, but it's true. Yeah. Um, that and also, and also the Impressionists. Like, I just, like, stood in front of those for the first time in my life 
and I could feel my focus was split between looking at the paint and looking at the painting and looking at the paint and looking at the painting. Does that transformation take place between this stuff? Like with the Van Gogh, it's like thick and juicy and sitting on the surface. And on one level, you can't not see the way each of those strokes is casting shadows on the next piece of paint, you know? So it's just paint at that point. But then you can compare it to the very next moment and suddenly it's an iris or it's a blade of grass or it's a crow in the sky at a certain time of day. And so I think that's when it happened. When I realized that transformative aspect and that that's when it wasn't just about painting a thing anymore it was about an engagement with i don't know everything with the with with the material but also with what that material could embody mm-hmm. and then that could be transmitted to, to me an audience member yeah. so i was studying theater at the time so i think that's where that sort of like I'm the audience member looking at this painting now and I'm having this experience, which is just as much about looking at the material as it is looking at the imagery. Yeah. And it's really looking at both of those things. Mm-hmm. And there's an aliveness between those two things that I'm totally enraptured with. Yeah. And then it fell hard. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, the materiality aspect, there are artists who don't want that to be apparent in their work, right. the material. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it about the fact that you could kind of flip back and forth between uh, the subject matter, maybe what you saw in the painting, but then also recognizing the, the material of it? What was it about that drew you to now make work kind of in that way where the material is important? I think it it is literally the coexistence of the aliveness of those things, you know. So there's something about the space between looking at the surface and looking at what that surface becomes, you know, in your recognition. There's a space there, I think, whereas with looking at something that is... um, sort of rendered and seamless, touchless mm-hmm. in a way. You, I miss that part of it. I miss that part of, and it's not even the hand. It's not anything like that. It's just, to me, there is an awareness of both the potential within the material, you know, that is made... Um, and is made kind of visceral and alive in that moment. So it's that it's that kind of the potential is there, and it's it's in it's in the moment when it is no longer it's it's between being paint and image that magic happens. I think. So when you when you view work or look at other other people's work, is how do you enter that work? Is What's standing out to you first? Do you read the material? Do you read some particular aspect of it? I think, I think any, I like a lot of different kinds of artists and I think, and I like a lot of different kinds of sculptors, painters. I think 
I think the first thing that may that may grab me is is whatever it is in the image that causes me to see differently than I walked in the door. And that can happen with music too. You know, like all of a sudden there's this beautiful kind of coalescing of instrument and sound and mood and emotion. Right. It's the same thing with painting. I think there can be just a moment where maybe it's the symbol and the the symbol in the context of the whole narrative of the painting. Suddenly, I start to see an apple or a cup, you know, for example, in a different way. It's no longer the thing that it always has been in my vision, either because of color or because of context or because of materiality. It can be any of those things, I think. So so I think that's what I'm looking for is something that either triggers me intellectually, emotionally, in a sensory way, that the way I'm kind of talking about the paint quality does, um, that opens up doors in my perception somehow, my experience or my understanding somehow. Or that could just be empathy. You know, so like some paintings are so emotionally beautiful that I'm taken out of myself for a few minutes because I'm engaged with what that maker has allowed me to experience as someone else's story. So you empathize with the artist and you think about the artist and not necessarily the work itself or the subject matter? I definitely think it's the narrative is between both of those things. So I could look at, say, a beautiful um, Rembrandt portrait of someone or a self-portrait maybe and, and ask myself not only about the character of the sitter in that time, but how was it possible that he, the painter, she, the painter, saw that and then made that happen? So it's both. Because you know, I think in order to make that in order to create that experience for your audience, you've got to be able to feel it for yourself first, which means there's a certain level of self-awareness and empathy in the maker of the thing, right? Not to mention just skill. So for someone who was visit a museum and, and look at work, you would encourage them to think about that relationship. My my thought is you you come into a museum or a gallery and you view the work and a lot of it is about the relationship that you have with that work and in all honesty not a lot of that time is spent thinking about the relationship of that work to the artist so that's pretty mind-blowing to me to now think about not just that relationship that I have with the work uh, but to empathize with the artist I wonder if that's a painter teaching painting kind of thing. I don't know. Well, yeah, like, I don't know. I was about to ask it. I mean, I would I would definitely say that because of your background, mm -hmm. it would it would, you know, force you to think about, you know, why somebody did this and what kind of the mental state they were in in making that work. Is there a parallel in design maybe thinking about like why a designer. I mean, why is certainly important, but um, I mean, I guess in a more commercial setting, the whoever made that is, you know, it's not always the case, but a more neutral voice where the 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 maker is not as significant as you know whatever that work is doing to the audience. Uh, I know most. A lot of people might not think that, and certainly designers that kind of work 
work with a particular voice. But I would say a lot of designers probably were kind of in the more kind of in the background where it's necessarily need to have a voice. Uh, so that's interesting uh, and something I'll certainly think about um, in the future. Uh, what is the significance of color in your work? I think my early interest in painting came from my background in theater. And so primarily, especially at the beginning, it had to do with light. And I think when I when I first started, it was it was about color being able to communicate the illusion of light. I think the more that I work, the more that I study, the more that I look at other works, I think it's that color embodies light in some ways, you know. So that that is that's it's there's a difference between understanding the way light hits something and the way light and shadow patterns happen. And then using color to kind of communicate that. At a certain point, it has shifted from, yes, that's part of it, but it's also light. Color against color is light against light. One color kind of light, one color light against another color light. And so there's an abstract interest in it in that way. I think it also is about uh, the feeling. It's about an emotional tone, too. Um and in that way, it becomes, for me, another part of the narrative of the painting. So, like, there's the story. There can be a story to the painting, but there cannot. There is also a color story to the painting, you know? So, in the some of the still lifes I've been working on lately, kind of, like, bringing that a little bit more self-consciously into the composition of the painting, where there's these color blocks that are happening in the background, and some of that is about a nod to color theory and a nod to um sometimes it's that too actually it's it's like it can be a quote to another painter in history um can you be more specific yeah. what that means yeah so an example i think it's like we we all so one of my one of my absolute favorite painters is bernard um and he uses color in a way that has a certain kind of luminosity to it. It has a certain kind of feeling. Like it describes the form, the forms in the space that he's painting, but it also describes an experience of a certain time. Um, and it's also a palette that ha that can potentially have. It has a very sort of intellectual use to it, you know. So you can understand that there are these warm dark passages against these cool light passages. There's a certain color idea in mind. That is just about color, but it operates on all these other levels too. So it's a depiction of the thing. It's the light at a certain time of day, but it's also the way we may remember something imperfectly so that the color is about a quality of the experience instead of literally the experience, if that makes sense. So I think about all those things. And so sometimes I will decide, you know, like I've made paintings in the past that were direct quotes to color palettes that I've seen in other painters. For that reason, so part of that is for me is about kind of like figuring out where a particular painting may fit within the lineage of its history. So if it is a, a figure in an interior, a, a figure in an interior, there's a whole history of that subject matter. So sometimes color will be a question about where that painting fits within that. But I think bottom line, it really is about an appeal to the senses. 
and the ways that senses can can trigger emotions or memories or a feeling of light. How does time work its way in there? Because I assume that it's connected in some way to either color or color and light. And is that something that's conscious in your work? I think I'm aware that we tend to think of the painting that a, a painting as a thing that is on a wall and fixed in time in that way. And so for me, color and the way we notice it and the way we follow it in the way in a painting and the way that it can perform multiple functions like I was just trying to describe you know it's descriptive but it's also sensory it's also emotional it's also um narrative it's all of those things and it, it's an exchange it does those things kind of simultaneously and in its own rhythm within any given painting and so kind of as I'm describing that, you know, those multiple functions of color as just one element of a painting, it takes time to experience that. So we're looking at one image, but we're also looking at moments within the image. And each of those moments functions in many different ways. And that takes time to, to experience and process. And you're speaking from viewing work. What about yeah. in making it? Making it time yeah is that is that something that you think about as you're you're making a piece the significance of um well light at, at different points of time mm -hmm. yeah i i think I, I do i think of it in in a lot of different sometimes if i'm painting from observation mm -hmm. and it's about natural light on a certain setup then there's a real direct experience of the limits of time there, you know. Well, to get so. to get specific, if you're yeah. if you're making a, I assume you 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 set up different parameters all the time for the, or or maybe you don't. Maybe you maybe you have set parameters or limitations for how you approach a painting. Um, but if you're painting from life, mm -hmm. uh, which you do often, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So what it, do you give yourself like? a set amount of time, like how that process of just light changing over time as you're working on it, how do you, how do you decide how to capture that best? Yeah, it def it, it's changed over time. So like sometimes it, it really is about setting the working hours within the, the, the kind of light that you want to be dominant in the painting. Is this kind of what you're asking? I'm, I'm just okay. time in general. Yeah. Okay. And so and then sometimes, so recently, especially during the pandemic, when I, when I went back to um, where I originally started in painting, which was to paint direct observation from still life, because um, there was nowhere to go, right? right? But everything is also changing like so rapidly. Um, I think that was when the paintings became less about time as a unifying element. In other words, this is an image of a thing under a certain kind of light at a certain time of day. So not doing that anymore now it's kind of about an acknowledgement of the passing of time and that plays out and that literally happened by accident you know i was sitting in my studio working and but there was natural light and then the natural light faded to the point where i needed to turn on the overhead light and then all of that happened because i didn't want to stop painting i just i was in a like right in the zone i wanted to keep going and then that became all these changes happen because now there's different light sources that are happening. 
So the painting that I made at that point became about tracking those changes in some ways. So, so it's, yeah. So, so, yeah, and that's a new thing. Honestly, I'm still figuring out what that looks like. And it's not, um, it's not a formula at all. I think, I think it, it, I made a few paintings where that was the case just to kind of see what would happen in different circumstances and different color relationships. And I think, um, the decisions you could, so think about it. It's like those changes are kind of, they're so small that you could, you could, be doing the same painting two to- two or three times and have different choices each time of where to where to stop and what to include right so the choices about how to deal with what happens in a given moment in time are really informed by the choice that came before the choice that came before that and what the painting needs yeah and that alone is exciting and interesting yeah i'm just i'm trying to imagine how many times you apply over one particular area of that painting are you in that process, which which you're kind of describing it being new, is that something where you're you maybe look at one particular piece of the thing that you're looking at, and you're coloring over on top of a color that maybe was more accurate to yep. that time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how do you decide when when a painting like that is finished? It's a really good question. Um, when you run out of time. Sometimes, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes the lemon dies, you know? (laughs) Yes. Oh, How do you decide the amount of abstraction a painting takes on? I think that is, that is something that keeps me painting. Mm -hmm. Honestly, that question keeps me painting because I think that that is what that is what I am interested in. And that goes back to the first thing that we were talking about, which is this idea that at some point things transform. And so painters who work at that edge between abstraction and figuration is nothing new at all. And I think um, I, am, I am somewhere between, I think my stopping point is the place where I'm not yet on the other side of the transformation whatever the painting is about, right? It always starts out as an abstraction, which means, you know, what one of my teachers told me, that you cannot paint skin, cannot paint an apple. You can paint shapes of color that look like an apple, and that's what we do as painters. And so at the most simple level, everything starts as an abstraction. But I think within that, there's so many choices, you know, that each individual makes about you know, all the all the formal aspects of that. Um, and because what I'm still fundamentally interested in is not illusion and not style, but a quality of when something feels like it's about to shimmer and come to life, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, that's that's sometimes that's what I'm looking for. Um, so then it becomes a question of like, you know what marks are going what, what marks are going to sustain what marks what choices what colors what edges are going to sustain that experience and whether or not that works for the whole painting you know so, um 
Yeah, and each one sets up its own, it's composition, right? So each one, at a certain level too, sets up its own sense of kind of rightness, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, balance, whatever that is, balance, imbalance, movement, whatever that is. Do you have a kind of a, talking about composition, is there, in a lot of your work, is there kind of a pattern of composition that you, or kind of a way you frame your drawings or your paintings that you kind of go back to? Unfortunately, I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is something I'm trying to actually um, pay more attention to. What What is that? Can you describe that? I think that I'm really interested in classical painting. That's a very broad term, but it, it's one where, you know, compositions where a consideration of the two-dimensional design and the three-dimensional space work in sync with each other. Um, it considers, I don't know, I think, you know, the Renaissance sort of principles of composition or the Baroque kind of principles of composition, you know, where things are swirling and circular and elaborate and ornate, you know. I'm, I tend to fall into formal choices, formal design choices that fit in those eras. Um, yeah, so. And I think that that can be a problem, honestly. I think that, you know, there can be a way that that is not just predictable, but limiting. So, and and also something that determines what you think a good painting is. And I think there's so much right now that is uncertain and unstable that sometimes that kind of stability and completely a system that answers itself in some ways is just not what's, um, yeah, it's a little bit too too right and too too easy sometimes not easy but too right i think too perfect ideal maybe that's the way to think about it why why is there kind of this desire to refer back to kind of historical references i think um do you feel like, and this is this is something I'm scared to ask because I think about my own work. What do you think you offer anything new to the practice that maybe that not necessarily that hasn't been done, but past like <laughs> just, felt, just felt my knees go. Yeah, I know, me too. Yeah, because like, I'm thinking about my own work. I'm like, yeah. yeah. I think there's the old this the adage that. Oh, you are the only person that can do things the way that you do them. And whether that brings something new to the quote-unquote canon, I think depends on how interested you are in doing that and how, I don't know, I, there's so, it's a really complicated question. Um, I'm just trying to make the best paintings that I can make. If I think too much about, if I don't think about the way my work is informed by or relates to or is inspired by or takes into consideration what's come before me, then I feel like I'm taking the easy way out and I'm not paying attention. If I pay too much attention to that, then everything that I see myself do is something that has been done before. So I have to try to co I have to try to exist somewhere between those 
to polarities, you know, which just means that I think in some ways I'm just trying to stay alert. You can't know what you don't know, you know what I mean? So I'm just trying to stay alert, keep painting and hope that painting leads me to the next right choice. That, that, um, that drive, that desire, is it, there's something kind of right on the edge of what you can do, what you've been making that you feel like you're, you're about to grasp that thing with every new work? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm nodding my head super okay. vigorously okay. right now. That's exactly it. Yeah. Okay. That's what keeps me. Yeah. 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 So, um, part of your work is your personal practice, but then also you teach and I want to talk about education kind of in general. What would you say is the beginning of an art education? The beginning of education. Is there anything that, I guess, thinking about fundamentals, the first thing that you teach a student coming in, whether they have experience in art or not, mm-hmm. is there something that's kind of underlying maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm trying. So there's a, there are quite a few things. So I'm trying to get to the first. If there's something essential, it's just that you'll never see things the same way again. That's, that's got to be, I think a comfort level with that has to be among the first experiences, you know, or, or at least an awareness, if not a comfort level, you know, to become aware of the fact that that everything that we thought, everything that we think about art, you know, all of, all of which comes from either, you know, the limited exposure that we have in our lives can determine very quickly what we think art is, the stereotypical ideas about who artists are and, you know, societal kind of, you know, all of those things come in with any beginning student, I think. Even if, you know, all they know is they just want to, they, they want to draw album covers, right? Even if that's all they know, I think, um, I, I think, I think they have to know that's a beautiful starting point and now everything is going to change. And so one of the ways that that begins to change is to make, is to give the student opportunities to understand that drawing is communicating, painting is communicating, design is communicating. And that and that a concept is really just something that you want to say at a, at a basic level. It's not outside, and you know anywhere in the world that it's something that the process of learning to draw, paint, and design is about discovering what it is that you want to say. And so even if I'm just teaching someone how to draw um, a still life, what I'm talking about is holding a pencil, sharpening a pencil, light, logic, value, shading, edges, space. Right. And the more we start talking about space, the more we're getting into an abstraction because it's a piece of paper. It's not space. So then you have the awareness that you are the maker of that space. And then you have the awareness that you are the maker who is communicating to someone. So I think I think that's it. It's like you come in with all these preconceptions. I can draw I can draw an album cover. I'm good. I'm an artist. Not yet, man. You know? <laughs> not yet. 
Uh, you've talked about this a lot, and you're kind of mentioning this idea of seeing what is the observer beginner's eye. That is actually many things. Um, is this what you're talking about as for someone coming into the work? They become an observer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that. Is that you're? A, I don't know that you. We can forget our preconceptions ever really i don't know that we can ever let go of them entirely i think we can become more and more aware of our habitual ways of seeing things i think drawing is one of the ways that we become aware of that um as long as we can get past some of the stereotypes of drawing you know what i mean um i think it really is for me for me it's the idea that Drawing is a way, painting is a way to come to know something. Even if you've seen an apple a thousand times, no two apples are alike. You know? And so I feel like there's so many artists who have come before me that have put this so much better. And one of them is the, the notion that drawing is forgetting the name of what you see, you know, so... I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. There's got to be a certain sense of gratitude in in that that you, yeah, you kind of strip away all these preconceived ideas of what whatever it is that you've seen a thousand times, and and you see it in a new way. Gratitude. Gratitude. I don't know. And humility I too. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That you. You know, we, we we take for granted all the things that we encountered. You you learn that this this thing that's an apple. I've seen it a thousand times, but then I don't know when you really start to see something. Yeah, right. Um, what are the moments in teaching that keep you doing it? How how long have you been teaching? Uh, I started teaching when I was in graduate school. Maybe actually right before I went to graduate school. I don't know how I'm going to date myself again because I can't even remember what date that was. So some years. Yeah, some years. Some years. <laughs> uh, over 20, I think. Okay, so some decades. <laughs> so, some decades. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what decade is this? Yeah. 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 So what are the, are there, I assume there's, there's, there are moments. Yeah. Yeah, there are. Definitely. I what are the, it, you don't have to be specific or you can be specific. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's for me, it's always when I think it this I'm realizing there's this theme. It's it's always this place of when awareness shifts, you know. So all of a sudden someone who has been struggling hits passes through that wall. Can you describe that maybe a little more concretely? Yeah. I think Or maybe I do want you to be specific okay. <laughs> that in that moment. Um like how do you how do you see that in somebody where that that awareness like shifts? Is it in the work that they're making or it can be. Yeah. It can be or it can be just talking about paintings. You know, so if if you're giving a if you're giving a talk, you're looking at work together, you're having a conversation about this work and you're thinking about the way, you know, things are not just things in a painting but there are symbols and there's some there are metaphors and those metaphors add up to con- content, right? Um, and I've you can see the lights go off in certain faces where they they understand now that 
there is this there is this function that choices perform and that every choice that we make in a work performs a function hopefully works with all the other choices right you know? yeah. so so when they start to understand that that's the difference between looking at looking at a um looking at an iris and looking at a painting you know what i mean it's like there there's an awareness of what is possible that happens and i think so it can happen when you're talking about just ideas and i love that um in fact that may be one of the you know, if you're talking about working with students, at the, it's at, I guess it's at different levels, different things, right? right. right? So like in, in a freshman level, somebody's been having a hard time with perspective and all of a sudden they get it. And it's like, yes, right? That's totally satisfying. Because it go, like if, if, if I can learn how to paint, then anybody can. That's kind of my philosophy, right? And so to see that process happening and to see that let someone feel not just success, but also excitement about the next thing. That's pretty wonderful. I think also as somebody who my ideas continually evolve, when I talk with my students, I have that experience of what it's like to only know the fragments of an idea. I know I'm interested in this, 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 and I don't like this. I might want to do this. And those are all pieces that can feel like they're very far apart from each other. So when we, when we talk and we start knitting those things together, and an idea about a starting point starts to coalesce a little bit. I just love that process because I still know what it's like to be in my own studio and have fragments, you know, of an idea and the process of making it now alone in my studio often more often than not is about figuring out how things coalesce, right? You know, so I think those all make me continue to teach or continue to be excited about teaching. So on the flip side, what is what are some of the mo- most difficult aspects of teaching? I love what I do so much that if I don't feel a level, and this is really bad probably, if I don't feel a level of excitement on the, coming from the other end, I, get, I can get disillusioned, hopefully not publicly, but frustrated and usually publicly <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly, you know? Um, because I think, I think, I feel passionately that what we do in this region is, is critical worldwide, but I feel like we have a responsibility to, to, to take whatever interest our students walk in the door with and help them to grow that. And part of helping them to grow that is helping them to understand that it's possible to have a life that includes that. And I think we're working against the stream in many ways with that. So this is all kind of a long way around to come back to why it's important. Like I'm invested at that level and I want to feel like there is some kind of investment coming the other direction too, you know. Even if they don't know, they're willing to try. But being willing to try means knowing that this is, you know, I, I, I think any career that we want to go into is going to be hard, but this one's really hard, right? So you got to want it. And if they, if I can't, I try to do what I can to make, to help them see things that make them excited, right? But if nothing's coming back the other way, it's very hard, very hard. Yeah, that I mean, that's certainly something that I think about all the time is, is it, 
how, where do we meet in this where the student may not see as clearly what they're going to be capable of? They might not be as excited as the, they're not going to be as excited as I am right. and what I do and what we're doing. So how do you help convey like passion and get them excited about it? Like, I, I assume they have to come in with some level of like determination and excitement about what they're doing. You can't necessarily foster that. Out right. Of, out of nothing. Yep. Right. I think so. Maybe not entirely. Yeah. yeah. So, and I assume at different, different levels, whether that's someone that's first entering versus a upper level or grad student. I kind of that that differs, but I, I completely understand the yeah that might be the best answer for this because anybody that comes in excited that just kind of builds up my excitement for it. Um, and uh, anyway, How, go ahead. Well, it's it's funny. It's like I think. I've just had so many experiences recently, and I don't know if it's coming out of the pandemic. You know, there's this kind of sense of urgency about everything, a sense of rushing about everything. I don't know, everything matters. There's an intensity about everything. And so there have been times when I have gone home and had conversations about, like, I'm just like, I can't get this person to come along with me. And what I hear frequently is that, you know, the old, you can't make everybody, you know, you can lead a horse. Uh, horse to water, right? And I hate that. I resist that 100%. But I also know that um, there is a certain place where, you know, we're, we've got a whole number of students in there. And, and it's probably true that they're all receiving things and processing things a little bit differently from each other. You know? And so what we're really talking about is a group approach to handling the individual, I think. Um, so that plus... I kind of count on the fact that I have to be the adult. I have to be the one that understands that there's a limit at some point. And yet that can affect the level of my interest and excitement and intensity. Because it may very well be that the person who is in the corner not saying anything and not looking up comes back years from now and talks about how instrumental this class was in changing their lives. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I hold out, you know, when I was just starting to teach, somebody said, if you just reach one person, yeah. then that's okay. Um, that's kind of sad to me. It's kind of sad to me, too. I know. <laughs> I, I think, and I kind of had a jaded opinion about it yeah. at the time, too, now that I think about it. But I feel like maybe there's a one person that I don't know about, that I don't know everybody's story. Yeah. No matter what I think is going on, I really don't. You know? So I try to hold out for the, the option that best intentions are all around, you know. Yeah, it's certainly difficult to read the room often for me. I'll I'll be talking about something and you just kind of look out there and you're like, what are y'all thinking right now? <laughs> Anything? Anything? <laughs> Do you hear me? Am I wasting my breath? Yeah. Yep. Um, That's a real thing. What do you, what is the most practical piece of art related knowledge you would give someone who is not an artist, but knowing it would improve their life? You have to say that one more time. Yeah. Okay. What is the most practical piece of art-related knowledge that you would give someone who is not an artist, 
that would help improve their life? Maybe you've already given that from the first question. Help <laughs> me with this one, man. <laughs> um, I hope I've given it already because right now, yeah. Like, I mean, I could I could see that just being, you know, someone that observes things differently for the first time, really looks at something. But I didn't know if you had any other ideas. Not like, you know the color wheel, but if there is something that it could be very practical like that. So I feel like if everybody just knew that great artists are made and not born, that that would be potentially life-changing because I think it would, it would you would approach looking at a painting, potentially you could, or whatever it is you're looking at, from the point of view of understanding that someone learned how to do that, which means that someone wanted to do that, which means that someone had something that they wanted to share with the community. Yeah, there's certainly a language around, especially, you know, kids, you know, whether it's a parent or somebody and there there are natural talents but then you know people will say certain things around something that you know especially a kid somebody younger makes and you can tell okay there this person you're an artist you already have that in you and so that's what you should do and then on the other side you know you shouldn't do that thing mm-hmm. and for whatever reason either you're not talented or maybe it's it's not something that you have job security in. And I don't want to necessarily open that hole mm-hmm. in worms unless you want to open that. And that's certainly, that's been a discussion, especially lately, um, looking at potential um, deans coming in, mm-hmm. like what their view of liberal arts is and how you can kind of defend the the return on investment of that kind of education. We can a little bit because I I think the issue really is that we are not comfortable with indirect routes as a, um, as individuals, as a society, as a culture, um, for a lot of reasons, I think. And, and I think that issue, it applies, it applies in the sense of the Dean in that, what the dean is talking about as far as enrollment goes and that the benefits of a liberal arts education are not about necessarily entirely practical skills but what they really are what it really is is about creating thinkers you know that have an awareness of culture an awareness of um the ways that all the aspects of humanity and society show up in made things and and the idea that those things in turn contribute to a better more sensitive more alive more connected more related world you know and because it is so much 
about commercial success and so much about I think even the stereotypical, you know, like the the sort of the genius stereotype. Right. I mean, what we know is is that that's not the only model, and yet I think it is the model that everyone thinks of when they think of, you know, like the historian with the long gray beard up in the tower, or you know, Jackson Pollock or Andy Warhol. You know, it's like it that is not the model. You know, um, and so I think what it is is that it's not. Is it enough to say that we are cult- contributors to culture, contributors to society? Um, how do we create a sense of value for that? I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think on a practical level, the return on investment, you know, is not to say that you're going to leave here and become um, a dental assistant. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you're going to be able to talk your way into and problem solve your way through a lot of different things. And what that does is it puts the it puts the responsibility for the vision of what those things are back on the student. It doesn't come from, it's not a product that comes from us, you know? And so I think part of what we do is we do, and we do provide experience and skills, you know? So like all of those terms, right? You gotta be a great thinker, but you also gotta know how to write a good letter of application, right? You know, so. So I think I think um, part of what we do is set them up for, I don't know, personally in some ways, the experience of going through the program, the art program, or through liberal arts, the process of running up against great ideas all the time and trying to figure out what they mean and what you think of them um, strengthens you as an individual and prepares you in ways that are not necessarily always tangible. But I also think that the process of making is like that too. You know, like so for us, I you know I may have an idea for a class to start out with and then you know what ends up happening at the end of that class is sometimes in line with where I thought it was going to go and sometimes it's about finding the pathway through that and leads to something it's the same way in my studio work there's a certain level of comfort with uncertainty that nobody wants you know nobody I don't think we I don't think we have it innately but I think we we build the resilience to be able to work with that and maybe hopefully even take advantage of that, you know, yeah. the most of it. So it's beautiful. I mean, we've been talking a lot about develop a story for the liberal arts mm-hmm. and art, art and design, architecture and interior design in general. I think a lot of what you said is that story. I don't know whether to go into this or not, but we're, I'm going to take a stab at it. <laughs> this will kind of be the last subject, and then I've got a couple of uh, quick questions. So at one point we talked about this, and I couldn't necessarily articulate um, precisely what I was asking, but it was this idea of a dying medium. Ah, yeah. Yes. Hey. <laughs> yeah. It's something that I've been thinking about being in education and being in a field where AI and machines could foreseeably take up a lot of the decisions and the actions, the things that I do. And that could be in the next, you know, 10 years, it could be further down the road. What? 
what is your thought that what what's the role on more traditional mediums like painting and drawing and even to a certain degree some of the things that that I do as a graphic designer what does that look like in the future I think does it, does it stay does it stay where it's at right now I think it may hover around where it's at right okay. now, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like these questions, these sort of like questions about um, total shifts come up a lot, you know? So like end of end of century scenarios, all of a sudden you know, things are yeah. gonna end and everything's yeah. gonna be. Um, and what I feel, and it, yeah, in, in my field, so I'll just start with a specific example, in my field in particular, Figuration was dead. Painting was dead a long, long time ago, right? Um, and that's obviously no longer the case. And oddly enough, it's the tech for in me specifically, figurative painting. My education is from animators. Animators needed to know how to draw so that their digital, uh, their digital products could be better. You know what I mean? So it's like there's this interconnectedness there, but that's also drawing in service of something else. So I think my my feeling has always been that as soon as the pendulum swings in one direction, it leaves a gap in the other direction, right? So if we if if when 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 photography became you know like a, a medium with a lot of impact, did painting die? Did realistic painting die? No, it changed. So I, and I feel like the more mechanized things become the more we want the thing that has been well crafted by a human and i think it's because we're we are all humans you know um and it's not necessarily about the human hand it's about what is it about i think it's about autonomy and about the fact that that there are ideas that we are capable of because of the nature of the way our brains work, if that makes any sense at all. You know, so I, it's not necessarily that I need to see the handmade thing. It may be that nostalgia brings us back to a certain handmade thing because we have associations with it that help us to remember what it was like to be human at a certain point of time. You know, that could be a starting point that will help to keep something alive. And then the makers will take that starting point and take off from there you know um so we're seeing a return to all these things that are um low tech in in a big way but at the same time we're also seeing how painting for example is is showing up in these virtual reality kind of scenarios so um i was at a show at the frist museum in nashville quite a while back now maybe three or four years now and it was about abstraction and one of the pieces in the show was literally you sit in a chair, you put on the virtual reality, you know, goggles, and you're in the middle of this painting. Mm-hmm. And yet what you saw was sort of navigating your way through planes of color and space and through represent representational elements and abstract elements. And it was all of that. And you had, you know, so, I mean, that was kind of amazing. Yeah. It really was. A lot of people looked at that and were like, wow, this is kind of like fascinating for a minute. But then they turned around and went back to the painting yeah. you know? 
So I don't know if that's an answer. Yeah. I, I think it all becomes a part of the big world of, of what is being made. And I don't, unless things go really wrong really soon. I don't see the I don't see the machines taking over the world but I could be an optimist all right to close us out do you have any recommendations we'll take two recommendations anything from music art books or movies that you've seen lately that you would recommend lately gosh I think I think young anything by Young Pueblo, okay. Clarity and Connection is the one that I'm reading right now. Um, could do everybody a lot of good to read. It's poetry, but it's also insight into the inner worlds. Right. Um, go look at a painting in person. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nicole, thank you so much. Thanks, Jake. Sure.